Hello, hello. You're listening to Mass Liberation Radio. My name is Kaylee, and Lily cannot be here tonight because she is hard work at the legislature. But we have a special guest tonight, um, Oja Vincent of Forest Trajectory Project. He is a producer, DJ, educator, and activist whose life work is to create and connect and be part of the global movement to build community through sound-based storytelling and production. Um, Forest Trajectory Project um is a media public relations and advocacy organization documenting the rippling effects of police violence that um, it has on communities beginning with families who have lost their loved ones uh, to police murder. So if you want to introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, yes, my name is Oja Vincent. I am one half of the founders of the Fourth Trajectory Project along with my partner, Lisa's son. And tell me, um, what, how did you get involved with uh, Fourth Trajectory Project? How did I get involved? Let's see. Um, the story begins in a form in 2002 when I myself lost a close friend, Cornelius Cat Davis, in St. Louis, Missouri, to police murder. It was a uh, mental health incident, and he ended up dying in the street and close to U City, St. Louis, close to Washington University there as a result of an altercation with an officer who was off duty, never identified himself as a police officer. And um, he shot my friend during the altercation. He died before the ambulance even got there. So at the time I was, uh, I went to high school in St. Louis. So I went to junior high and high school in St. Louis, but I'm originally from Long Island, New York. And um, my family moved when I was about 12 at which time I would come back to New York every summer to spend time with my grandmother in Queens and then return to St. Louis. And I had started getting involved in, in music, sound, hip-hop. I was a poet, and I'm still a poet, and I'm still a DJ, but I got into DJing and production. And I was linked up with a, a group of friends that was concentrating on music. So we were, you know, we definitely had friends who were involved in some other mischief, we made a conscious decision to concentrate on music. And when I finally had the opportunity to go back to New York to go to college, I attended NYU for um, some time, and then I shifted over to the new school. On that particular day, I was on my way, ironically, to a class, which is called um, Media and Race Relations, with a, a major in media studies. Um, so we're looking at the way in media studies, it's, it's inspected how people consume media, you know, what, how media messages are, are constructed and things like that. This particular class was about bias in media. And I got a call from my ex-girlfriend who knew Kat and told me to go check the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And so on my way to the class, day one, I went to check the uh, newspaper. And the newspaper had a story. This was the first of three stories. The story changed three times that my friend uh, supposedly had tried to carjack an off-duty police officer. So that was the narrative from the beginning. And then it shifted just slightly throughout two following articles. So it was crazy to sit in that classroom and everybody was going around, kind of like I'm doing right now, introducing ourselves. And uh, during my part, I had to say that uh, I just found out that my friend was murdered by the police and the way that he was characterized in the newspaper was completely um, opposite of who he was, right? So that character assassination that immediately follows somebody was painfully evident to me in that moment. 
And I think a lot of people are, are, are understanding that now a little bit better. But at the time, usually you would say somebody got killed by the police. And the first question that someone would react with is, oh, what they do, right? So there's a certain, there's a certain inundation and acquiescence to a certain degree that everybody has when it comes to these narratives about folks who have been murdered by the police. And then the narrative is often held, the power is held by the establishment themselves. So the murderer or the team of the murderer, right? Um, is ordinarily the one to give the so-called official narrative. So from that point, I was already politicized to a certain degree. I had done protests against Disney and sweatshops in Haiti. Both my parents are Haitian immigrants, furthermore refugees, right? They came in the 60s and uh, met in high school in Brooklyn. I was born later in Long Island. So I was already kind of politicized in terms of knowing how to get out for a protest. I was involved in radio and broadcasting things like Fremo Mia rallies in, in Philly and New York and stuff like that. Anything I could to try to help the movement, you know, for, for social change to a more humanistic society already. So the energy that was coming in with the loss of my friend, the confusion, the pain, the hurt, the sadness, the anger, especially, I knew I had to transform that somehow. So. I became a part of an organization that is called the October 22nd Coalition Against Against Criminalization of a Generation, Police Brutality, and, and Police Murder. And that organization, uh, within that organization, I met Nisa, Nisa's son, who is now my partner for 12 years in this project. Um, she was a part of the Answer Coalition, and she had been detailing the murder of a, a gentleman out on Long Island and whose name is Kenny Lazo at the time. And and then, so we're talking around 2009. Yeah, 2009. So we we were part of the same collective. And we there was a woman who was ahead of that along with Carl Dix, whose name was Monica Shea, who was a professor at CUNY City University of New York. And she had students of hers detailing uh, murders across the country of citizens by law enforcement. And this is put together into a compendium called the Stolen Lives Compendium. So the Stolen Lives, uh, Stolen Lives is how we refer to people who had lost their lives to, to police, specifically with state-sponsored violence in general. And so we would do induction ceremonies every year where artists would paint portraits or uh, different artists would do different things to commemorate folks that had been lost and their family members would come in and we kind of give them this and show them community support. There was an existing movement that was also connected to October 22nd Coalition, which was being run by folks like Iris Byers, who lost her son, Anthony Byers, in 1994. It's the very same way we saw Tashi Brown murdered in front of the Venetian the same way we saw Eric uh, Eric Gardner killed in, in Staten Island, you know, chokehold, uh, he was suffocated to death. And so Iris Baez kind of was leading this movement along with Nicholas Hayward uh, Sr., who is no longer with us, who we got very close to. And these were our mentors to show us how to center the front line of the movement, you know, how to kind of lead with what can I do. 
And so being an artist in sound, I was already recording folk stories, different family member stories in an oral history capacity. And Nisha was taking photos. So we decided to get together to do it together. And in 2009, we covered the story of Nicholas Hayward Jr., who was murdered out in the Guana Projects um, of Red Hook. And he was just playing cops and robbers with his friends and a cop busted in. And he dropped the gun and said, well, only playing, we're only playing. The cop shot him and killed him. Um, it was the aftermath of that that was even more shocking to us. The fact that as the young man was bleeding out, his mother was not able to get to him to see him. They stopped her. Um, and as we experienced more and more cases and started to detail the stories of the families, we understood that these things were, were forming patterns. You know, it wasn't, it's not an anomaly when someone's murdered by the police and they're looking for anything in their record, anytime they've been arrested, any, you know, right now we're, we're looking at the George Floyd trial and you can see that they're trying to bring up the fact that he was addicted to opiates. It's totally irrelevant, right? But anything to shift the public perception in line with the propaganda that exists already around police being heroes, you know, so is uh, we decided to ask Monica Shea if we could do something like she was doing, but use our art to kind of make it pop a little bit more, to make it more digestible for folks, to grow empathy a little bit more, and to encourage folks to reach out to people and ask, you know, what can we do to support you with the skills that we have? So we kind of look at it as a guerrilla effort, meaning that we analyze our environment. We think about what we already have and how we can use it. And then we allocate what we have, including our skills and our network to the cause of trying to intervene in the so-called official narrative with a narrative that comes from family members and friends of someone who's been murdered. And that, that turned into greater advocacy over time, right? Because just naturally you start telling someone's story we start to form relationships. And like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a little bit more directly impacted, not as a family member, but as a, a, a really good friend. I mean, Kat was like a brother of mine, especially in creativity and in our formative years in, in terms of ideology. We were very close in our philosophy of uh, universal human rights and just thinking of things more globally. To lose him, it was, it was really, really difficult for me. So there's sometimes I cannot get as involved as my partner. And a lot of the folks um, she's built closer relationships with in terms of family members, I don't have that close of, uh, of a relationship with just because of the way the trauma uh, really does affect uh, me every day and, and anybody who's directly impacted or one step away from being directly impacted, like a friend or someone who's been murdered. So that's, um, that's kind of what it's been about. And that's kind of how it came about. There was a, she was doing an event, so post, so we started doing a few things together. Um, actually, we we were just in the same organization, so the Nicholas Hayward story happened later, I think in 2011. No, no, we covered this story in 2009, yes. But we, we didn't really do any other stories together at that point, and the earthquake had happened in 2010. So I went to Haiti with my recorder. I started doing some work in Haiti and I received a call from a friend of mine 
that Nisa was doing an event at the Breck Forum, which was kind of like, it no longer exists, but it was a West Side, it's named after Bertolt Breck, the great German uh, playwright and, and progressive. So for, for workers' rights especially, but for human rights in general. We, um, she was doing an event there for uh, Kenny Lazo's family, and I was in touch with Bud Bell, who was the father of Sean Bell, uh, who we lost in Queens on his, you know, the night before his wedding. He was at his bachelor party in Queens, November 25th, 2006, when he was murdered. So I had formed a relationship with Bud Bell and talking about the case and shared the case of the murder of my friend. And I sent Bud Bell over to the event. As a, as a result, because that was a high-profile case, uh, the event received some media coverage, and it was it was beneficial for more exposure for Kenny Laza. So we see that a lot now. We see these high-profile cases, but for every one high-profile case that makes national news, there's probably ten or more that are going on at the same time that nobody knows about. You know, so we really do advocate for local cases, for folks um, to really amplify and reach out to families in their own towns where this is going on because the rest of the nation doesn't really find out about it, you know, if it doesn't, if it's not sensationalized by commercial media. Yeah, I want to first off say thank you for um, reliving your trauma and, um, you know, I'm so sorry about your uh, friend passing. Lily and I, um, over the summer, really got to know um, some directly impacted folks in Reno. Um, and one of them was um, Micaiah Lee's mother. Um, her son was taken away by Sparks uh, Police Department. He was only 18 years old. And um, what you're saying is um, exactly her story and so many other stories I've heard of where the police... Um, didn't tell her that her son was dead until um, hours um, like later, like in the night. Um, they uh, kind of create this uh, different narrative that like they were innocent and somehow um, Micaiah was on drugs and like part of a gang and like stuff like you said that is totally irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a detraction from the truth, you know, and like recently which I guess we could get into also with this legislative session. There's been some recent legislation that folks have, system players have reached out to us to be a part of and to testify around or be part of the discussion. You see a lot of the detraction and deflection in the defensive reaction of other legislators who try to say that we're anti-police, and that's not the case at all. You know, I have friends that have become police officers over the years I have family members who have been in, in different facets of law enforcement and stuff like that. And there's always this binary of, oh, it's a few bad apples, right? Without looking at the systemic patterns that take place. And then the things that provide, provide immunity. So when we talk about things like qualified immunity, but the fact is that we are not anti-police, we're anti-violence. And we're, we're really not anti-anything. We're pro-human rights and dignity. And, you know, I really want to point to Malcolm X Ballard in the bullet because I always think about his comments around shifting the discussion from civil rights to human rights because civil rights are under the jurisdiction of the same folks that develop the system. And it's one of the things, and human rights is universal, right? So one of the things Nicholas Hayward always used to say is that, you know, 
the system's not broken. It's designed and working exactly the way it's supposed to work. And a lot of family members nationally, especially a lot of the, the kind of like the family members we look at it's kind of like OGs who have been struggling for so long. Um, you know, Richie Perez from the Young Lords is another person I need to mention. Rest in peace, rest in power. Um, but he was integral in bringing these family members together in the 90s to get together and build with each other around what is the strategy, what is the tactic from the source. And to us, that's the most important thing because they would all call this the injustice system. You know, they say, let's, let's call it what it is, the injustice system. And one of the things Nicholas had said to me before he died, he, he, he passed away of, uh, he had heart trouble and he had a bunch of illnesses that also happened in the aftermath of this because it's everyday trauma. It's more continuous trauma syndrome than it is post-traumatic anything, you know, because it's every single day. And especially now when we're hearing about it all the time, it is positive. But for folks that have been through it, I would urge listeners to remember that they're reliving this every single time. You know, like the other day I accidentally heard, because I had been trying to avoid it, but I accidentally heard the recording of George Floyd's voice as he was begging for his mother and asking for help. I like went in the other room for a minute. I wasn't able to pause it or, or do anything like that. And, it, you know, really, it's really triggering. I just heard my friend's voice and it was like, it's, it's very difficult to explain that to folks. So while there are certain elements, and this is also being revealed right now, of the movement who have exploited, you know, family members' names, who are out there shouting people's names in trying to show solidarity, but carrying a certain amount of ignorance in their shop because if you're not talking to the family directly, you should not be pumping their family's name. Think about if it was your brother or your friend and now somebody's running around with their face on a poster and their name and they're, they're tokenizing that person. It's something that you really need um, permission for. It's something that the, the dignity should be given to. And so as a methodology, the force trajectory project operates on what we call the revolving consent model. So as media makers and media artists, it's a little bit harder because the revisionary process is deeper and you have to touch more bases. You know, a lot of families have cases going on. So not only do you have to check in with the family, you have to check in with the law team to make sure what you're doing aligns with the strategy of the case, right? We have enough obstacles against achieving justice. And then there's the question of what is justice? And that's another thing that Nicholas was saying to me before he passed away. He was saying, I asked him uh, before one of the national meetings we were helping to organize, which I believe was the second one, and that was at Merritt College in Oakland, um, the, the birthplace of the Black Panther parties, of the Black Panther Party, excuse me. Um, he was, he was, I was saying, if there's anything you would want me to say to the families because at that point he was too sick to travel. He had traveled to the previous year's national meeting, which is like a hundred families deep nationally getting together. And it was a space that we created just so folks could get together, um, exchange knowledge because that's really the most powerful thing. And then there's this beautiful energy that happens in the room of reunion and joy within loss, within the struggle. You know, it's an intentional community, intentional family that uh, folks form with each other that nobody else could really understand. Because their own family members are telling them a lot of times, get over it already, um, you know, and all the other things you would hear. But when they get together, there's very little that they need to tell each other before they can get down to the nitty gritty and really talk about it. So 
when I asked him what would be one of the most important things to say, because we were going to present around um, talking to folks about helping them write their own stories and make their own media, which is FTP Media Lab, right? We have that now going on. He said one of the most important things is to ask folks, what is justice? Right? Because justice, which is, is such an overused term, people want justice. Oh, they're going to get justice. We're fighting for justice. But the fact is, you really would have to ask someone who's lost a loved one, what is justice? It's not enough just to get X amount of money in a settlement, right? Um, that's not resurrecting somebody. You can't give a loved one that. So a lot of times a family will, well, not a lot of times, most of the times, overwhelmingly, families lose criminal cases and then they go for civil cases and they often lose those too. And the barriers to those are very specific. I'm sure we can get into that. But the fact is, a lot of activists and a lot of organizations and different uh, people who are calling themselves advocates, they're taking it for granted that justice is this concrete thing. It really needs to be inspected with the folks they're working with. Or what what do they actually want? And then to think, take a minute to pause in that state of shock, because that's what it is when this happens, to ask yourself, how can, how can I actually help, you know, and really help not exploit somebody unknowingly even, but, but actually help and to be sure that you're helping and not hurting something. Because right now we've got journalists out there who are millionaires, you know, they're being sued um, by others for, for the promises that they made who are family members, you know, of, of folks who have been murdered, whose names they have been exploiting. And all of this stuff is coming to light. But if the methodology is correct, then you never have to worry about that. Force Churchill Project never had to worry about somebody trying to say, oh, you're exploiting this or that. Everything everything that we amplify is owned by the family. If anybody ever says, hey, I've decided I don't want my story to be up there anymore. I don't want my loved one's face to be out there like that. The story comes down immediately. There's no contract that once you share your story, if a movie comes from it, you know, it's owned by us or we own the rights to this and that, intellectual property and all of that. No, that's just replicating the same same dehumanization uh, system, you know. And we're, we're really about rehumanizing. We're about human rights. We're about dignity, you know. And that's something that everyone in the society needs. When these folks are fighting for their loved one, they're not actually fighting for their loved one. Their loved one is no longer with us. Their, their life has been stolen. What they're actually fighting for is us, for our children, for our elders. Right? They're fighting for every single citizen in this in this country. That's the that's the reality of it, right? So it, I think a lot of things really need to be put in perspective, and we just try to lead by example, and um, you know, do what we do. That's that's basically what it is. And I think that's so important. Um, Leslie Ann Turner of Mass Liberation Radio has been one of my uh, personal mentors, and she really taught me. She was one of the first people that really taught me that um, you need to um, center directly impacted people. And so that's kind of right. how I um, met Susan McKiley's mother, and um, we um, organized an action on behalf of her. So, um, could, yeah, like... Thank you for like uh, re-emphasizing that uh, directly impacted people need to be at the forefront of these uh, movements. That's my pleasure, and definitely big up Leslie. 
You know, we love Leslie. We're here in town with her in Las Vegas. We work hand in hand with Mass Live. And um, yeah, Mass Liberation Project is, is definitely a beautiful thing. And, and we're really trying to apply the special on these legislators, you know. We've done a lot of work in the legislative session. Let me um, decline this call for a second. We, we've done a lot of work in the legislative session. And when I say we, I really mean mostly, again, Nisa, because she um, rallies, works really hard to rally family members. She has started a group, a local group, Families United for Justice Las Vegas here, um, that consists of more than 40 members, including uh, about half, a little bit less than half, who are actually survivors. And most of them have been impacted by the uh, malfeasance of Metro. But some some of the members lost family or, or were impacted in California or other places and now live in Las Vegas. For instance, Stefan Clark's aunt, uh, Nisha Maya, she lives in town. She's a part of the group. Um, Milu Gonzalez, who lost her brother in California now, lives here and she's a, a, on the board of Families United for Justice as well as others. But there's a beautiful group of activists who are directly impacted folks who are working for justice for their loved ones here in town. And there are 40 demands that came from that group of folks, Families United for Justice Las Vegas, as a result of the question of what are the barriers to achieving justice in your case, right? So some of the things that are included in that include ending qualified immunity, you know, um, divesting and dissolving police unions, getting at some of these independent organizations that have been formed of former police and military who help the police kind of set up the pieces on the chessboard so that they can avoid accountability, such as the Force Science Institute um, and some of the other private corporations training police, as well as national programs like the 1033 program, which we know takes excess military equipment from the gargantuan uh, federal military budget. The surplus comes back to local police, and it's part of what helps to militarize local police, not only fiscally, as there's so much money pouring in, but it's also the equipment. And the third factor is the training, right? Because Folks go to other countries and they invade other countries and they treat citizens really wrong. You know, we, we know some of the things that happen in Iraq and Afghanistan and some of the things that are happening in Syria and so on. So that kind of training comes right back to local police departments. And as the police are rolling around with serve and protect, you know, the community on their card as a slogan and an oath that very few of them can recite, they're abusing our communities in the same fashion. You know, so these are some of the kind of things that we're trying to do away with on our way to abolition. There's this discussion of reform, but really how much can you reform in in this type of design? You know, reform is only one step towards abolition. And there are some beautiful things happening in the nation. I'm not trying to be pessimistic about this. We have to be optimistic to do this work, especially for 12 years, right? You have to see the light at the end of the tunnel and keep a positive vision and know that it's possible because things are happening now in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, you know, and the, and the malfeasance of, of Chauvin and, and the other police officers that were with him. 
we're seeing things like the STAR program in Denver, Colorado, you know, which is also an area where we lost Elijah McClain. And as a result, they did away with um, qualified immunity. You know, and if you don't know, qualified immunity is what prevents a police officer from being able to have a civil case brought against them. So like I explained before, most of the time, a family will go at police officers with a criminal case, uh, criminal prosecution. And uh, uh, not only are police officers ordinarily not prosecuted, the rate, the, the, the prosecution rate is, is 0.6 or 0.7%, you know, that's percent. So there's three to five murders a day in this country, which amounts to somewhere like 1,500 a year. And in 2020, it was even higher than that. In 2020, we had 2,063 murders at the hands of the police. And these figures are coming from the researcher Rick Hill and also from different sites like Mapping Police Violence, Fatal Encounters, KillBlackPolice.net. Some of the commercial media has done a good job of looking at it in the past, like um, uh, Washington Post had, had some good things. The Guardian out of London has had a great expose years ago about the overall situation in the state. But uh, overall, there is no state agency that is keeping the numbers, right? You would think that if you ask a police precinct or an agency of, of a specific region, how many murders have you had at the hands of the people that work for you that are employed from tax dollars that they will be able to tell you? And the fact is that they, they can't. But right now, recently, um, Senator Dallas Harris has proposed uh, a piece of le legislation here in Nevada to try to track, just to track the disparities in, in, in uh, arrests or, or, you know, pulling people over, people they get pulled over. And there's such pushback against that. You know, they're even trying to present keeping the numbers. The reaction is that's anti-police. It's very similar to the way people would say that you're anti-American if you're exercising your rights to criticize what the laws are, which is like, in my opinion, the most American thing you could do. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a First Amendment right, right? Like, we're supposed to have a dialectic. We're not supposed to be shut down and not look at it. I mean, these folks are wrote, these folks are paid by tax dollars that come out of our checks, right? We pay them to kill us. We pay them to abuse us and to treat us like they're invading a country when they come in our community. And it's, it's not acceptable. It's not anti-police. They should feel like they need to do a better job from the beginning, from the get-go. That's that's something that, for me, creates a little bit of cognitive dissonance. It's something I really can't understand. Because as a, as a media maker, as a sound person, if I was doing something mediocre and someone was saying that's mediocre, then I would want to reflect on what I'm doing, what is my methodology, how could I do it better, in, in doing my profession. So if I call myself a police officer that's supposed to serve and protect citizens and I'm being paid by their tax dollars, you would think that I would want to reflect and and really do the job that I'm purporting to do, you know? So that's the discrepancy we really face a lot of times. It's like, we just want the police to do what they're hired to do, right? And we want community to know that regardless of all the police shows that are out there and all the movies you have seen where police are heroes and 
October 1, you know, and all the, and 9-11 and all the different times that they're trying to portray themselves as heroes. And there are heroic cops in those instances, no question. But as a force, it's shameful, all right? It's shameful to be paid by the money from the people and to be treating the people in that way, right? This is a canary effect that we're seeing. Having 12 years of experience has showed us that, yes, it's true. Black communities are more heavily impacted. Indigenous communities especially are more heavily impacted. But the fact is, is it affects every single community. We have family members here in Vegas and all over the nation that look every shade, every sexual orientation, every profession. This, there's no discrimination in the statistics when it's affecting everybody, right? We know that traditionally, African-American, due to historical facts and the lack of reparation, the lack of, of reconciliation, are continuing to, to, be a, to feel the brunt of, of the impact. That's true. But this is a canary effect. The net that they put out for specific people, specifically indigenous people and the removal of, of so-called Indian people, of native people in the creation of this nation is now spread so wide that it's affecting everybody in the community. And if you have a child or if you have a mother, if you have a father, if you have a brother or any family members or any friends, you should be concerned about this topic. Because it could affect you tomorrow. You will end up in the same boat. And that's why these folks are, are working for everyone. You know, it's, uh, to me, it's incredibly admirable. I mean, we are, we are awed by folks who have the bravery to stand up and fight for their loved ones, tooth and nail, especially those who have been doing it for so many years. You know, I mean, folks like Marion Gray Hopkins in, in the, uh, DC area, folks like Yolanda McNair. Uh, with posts protect our stolen treasures in Detroit. These these folks are our heroes and heroines, you know. I mean, it's, it's them that gives us the power to do what we do as we're amplifying and trying to let other folks that sit where we sit as as citizens and, and artists, media makers, uh, who have become advocates to try to do the same thing, but, but to do it correctly, you know, because we're not, we don't have to rebuild the wheel here. We're working off of a revolutionary heritage that goes as deep as as people like Ida B. Wells and Paul Robeson. You know, I mean, this this has been happening for a very, very, very long time in this country. And there was a legislator on a, a call. We had a call with Senator Rosen today, and she was mentioning how it's just recent that it's coming up that lynching should be federal uh, a federal crime, right? So now now lynching is a is a crime. It's a federal is a federal crime. And um, the fact is that police murder is, is it's, it's lynching. You know, extrajudicial assassination is, is lynching. There's no difference in our book. And actually, it's just a matter of semantics and terminology. You know, but if you ask the victim family of a lynching, a few questions, and then you ask the victim family of a shooting by a police officer, the responses are very similar, you know. And one of the other things that's really important, I know I'm going on and on here, but this stuff is very important, is the shifting the notion of just because you're victimized that uh, you're kind of curled up in a fetal position somewhere, right? 
especially for the family members who have stood up and begun to talk to media or independent media and build with artists like us or, or advocates like us and, and media makers like us. Um, there's no way these, these folks are, yes, they've been victimized by the murder of a loved one, but immediately they've turned that into action. They've transformed energy to use it as fuel to fight, right? I'm not saying that they don't have moments of, of weakness as every human being does. But when I think of these family members who are standing up for their loved ones, and, and by the way, almost every family member after a time creates their own foundation. So when we're working with groups of family members, it's more like working in coalition than it is in working in an organization that's full of individuals. Because each family member will start an organization. You know, we know family members that do things like start nonprofits that are just strictly about getting tombstones for other families who lose their loved ones. But so often we know, uh, in every case that we know about, families are not allowed to be compensated by victims of crime legislation. So in other words, if you lose someone to murder in general, uh, the state will look out for you. They'll help you with the funeral costs. They'll help you with different things. But when you're killed by a member of law enforcement or any state-sponsored agency, you are barred from that. These families have no resources. And very often their own families turn their backs on them because the cognitive dissonance is so great and the amount of shame that it creates is so great due to the propaganda, due to, you know, the way people are trained to react to this. Like I was talking about earlier, oh, what they do? They must have done something. Shame comes with that. So. In reality, there are so many family members who are not standing up, whose voices are not heard. Matter of fact, we don't even know where they are. They end up becoming houseless, addicted to drugs. They lose their jobs, all because of the trauma, right? So a lot of the houseless people you see on the street asking for money, or a lot of the people who are addicted to drugs and need help because they're addicts, they are family members. It started with that. It started with someone being murdered by the police, and then they were criminalized as a result of how they were trying to cope with their trauma. But these family members that you see organizing to help others, they're more like maroons, you know, in my book, in our book. I mean, if you think about what a maroon was, as someone who was in a condition of slavery, someone who had been enslaved, maybe even born in slavery, and gone through the torture and the trauma of being in that condition, they decided to free themselves either by running away or whatever whatever circumstance, but immediately shifted from the condition of being a victim of enslavement to being the guiding light for others to leave that condition of victimhood and to take agency. And that's really what family members in the fight are. These folks are, are, are lions and lionesses, you know, so it's really offensive to me when activists try to act like families can't speak for themselves, you know, they can't do anything for themselves. Sure, there's a period of time after someone has first murdered where it's very difficult for families, someone might have to represent. But the goal is not to maintain that dependency. The goal is to help folks be independent and to grow and to get stronger and to help others out, you know. So that's another important point is to not freeze family members of people who have been murdered into victim mode and, and to uh, essentially, uh, in my, you know, to, to, to render them, you know, don't, don't infantilize them. In other words, don't, don't, don't treat them like kids. Don't, don't act like 
as a matter of fact, they're your leaders, you know, they are leaders, you know, and that, that's really what our campaign last summer, Families at the Frontline, was about, was because we were seeing so many activist organizations and individuals refer to family members with, with nothing but pity. And it's not about pity. These folks don't need your pity. You know, what they need you to do is to get into action. And so I will often say to younger activists, your job as an activist is to help activate the front line. That's what your job is. Not to take an IG photo with your fist up, with a family member in front of, you know, in front of the spot where the rally's going on. Not to try to get as many hits on this and that. That doesn't matter. You know, none of that matters. You know, for us, if, if more family members are heard and we were forgotten, that would be fine. Just fine. You know, cause it's not about that at all whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's really beautiful how you uh, talked about um, directly impacted folks and um, when they become activists. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I saw um, Tamir Rice's uh, mother just recently came out um, uh, crit- criticizing uh, uh, activists who are using trauma from directly impacted folks for clout on social media so i definitely think it's a huge problem we've had a huge problem with it here in reno too especially over the summer um so i hope folks are really learning from groups like yours and mass liberation um project um to really like i totally agree like uh family members should be the leaders at the forefront in the center and um organizers no matter how much um organizing experience you have need to take a step back and mobilize people and so I wanted to ask you what's the best way for some of our listeners who are activists and organizers to help out um, right now well you know it's just what I said I mean please stay engaged we do we do a number of talks which we post on our website and all the social media handles and stuff like that but have don't only watch that have something to say that's constructive and questions to ask that can help you, you know, do what you do where you are. Um, it's always it's, it's always the mentality and the methodology for us to lead by listening. I would say that is, is number one. Also, um, we're both educators, Misa and myself, as well as artists. You know, things get hard as an artist sometimes, and you have to try to uh, become an educator, and you're in the system. I, I taught an after-school program in Brooklyn for many years for the City Parks Foundation around production but what ends up happening with that is you learn about other uh, modes of pedagogy and stuff like that so i was exposed to pedagogy of the oppressed by pablo ferreri you know i I started to learn about the highlander institute and bob orton and inside of that methodology is the is the idea that in popular education it's more like a circle right so knowledge works in a circle everybody first of all nobody owns it Right. Um, if we're not talking about directly impacted people, nobody owns the knowledge of, of, of methodology. So what I was talking about before around being guerrilla, it really derives from guerrilla warfare. Right. So if you were to read Che Guevara, guerrilla warfare and replace the guns and the weaponry with cameras and, and microphones, that's our basic methodology. And then working within the, the lines of popular education, it's the idea of each one teach one. You know, we all have something to offer to each other. So lead by listening and then know that you're going to learn something in in process. And every time that you're doing something, try to figure out 
and reflect on what you've done. Think about what can you do better and really ask people for feedback on that, especially to directly impact the people you're trying to help, you know, or at least, you know, move with. I don't even want to say help, you know. I also want to point to um, the great indigenous activists, we would say aboriginal activists, um, Leela Watson, her quote about if, if you haven't, if your liberation isn't bound to ours, then you really haven't come here to help anything. You know, you need, you need to think about um, solidarity, right? So lately I've been saying this a lot, but the current administration, of course, everybody's happy to get rid of uh, 45 and his clowns, right? But with the current administration, we're dealing with a level of liberal attitude. We can't forget about the history of Joe Biden with the crime bill in the 90s, right? Um, as he's talking about crossing the aisle to hold hands with folks that stormed the Capitol and folks that are in the, in, in the legislature that supported that and all that, and trying to, trying to unify. I mean, it sounds like the intentions are good, but the fact is we're already unified in the condition, right? We're, like I said before, we're all being impacted on a certain level. Some way less than others. You know, rich white men are, are impacted the less, uh, cisgender rich white men to be specific. But the fact is they are impacted on some level, not, not impacted nearly as much as black women, black men, um, uh, of, of so-called lower, uh, social, uh, financial status. But the fact is that everyone's impacted. We're unified in that condition. What we don't need is unity. We already have that. What we need is solidarity. What we need is for folks that are so far away from the subject or that are further away from the subject to understand that they are impacted in some way by it, you know? And then once that solidarity can grow and that folks can really look at each other as human beings again a little bit more and understand what human rights are about, that we all have the right to exist in this society. We have the right to housing. We should be uh, having, we should have the right to food that's nutritious and clean water and all of that. Um, but we should have the right to be alive without worrying about the folks who are paying to so-called protect us, murdering us, because that's what's happening, you know? So for folks out there that are, that are trying to do this work and get involved in this work, that, that's the first part. Lead by listening. Really ask family members what they need. Instead of elevating a case that's already getting national coverage and is already in the news and has already been sensationalized, already on the tip of everybody else's tongue, think about what's going on in your area that nobody knows about. Reach out to that family. If you can't reach that family, then you'll have to move on to the next family. You know, talk to your friends because it's happening so often. Like we've had volunteers for Forces Entry Project where it's like, you know, this person was at the gym and their trainer suddenly was telling them that they have a friend who was murdered by the police. And now they met the family of, of that person. And now that person's a part of our collective. And so, excuse me. And so this happens a lot just by a word of mouth. And that's a sign of how often it happens is that you probably know someone who it's happened to, or either you know someone who knows someone it's happened to. So think more on that level. And that's what I mean about a, a guerrilla or a grassroots mentality. You don't have to be a formal organization. You don't have to be, you know, this and that. We're not a 501c3. We have a fiscal sponsor, right? 
So that means that we have we have an organization we're connected to that's a 501c3 who helps us do things like get grants and stuff like that. But we we decided not to become a, a 501c3 because there's too many restrictions on the malleability that you need to have, the flexibility that you need to have to actually respond and not react. That's another key point for folks out there listening is like, understand that you're in shock when this happens. Matter of fact, right now in 2021, we're in shock from the whole year of 2020. COVID and everything that that administration, all of the missteps, all of the insults, all of the violence against women being excused, all the violence against uh, 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 LBGTQIA folks being exposed and just accepted. You know what I mean? We're in shock. So all of the, the, the continued violence, the same old, same old violence against black and brown folks and indigenous folks, you know, so to understand that you're in shock and um, to, to, to know that it takes time to build the muscle of what in, uh, in the fight game and like MMA, they call um, psychomotor vigilance, right? It's, it's like when you train till you're super tired. I remember when I was a, uh, wrestling in high school, but what we would do is train until you're just, you're like dead tired, you're sweat noodle tired. And then you start to spar after that. So what's that doing but training you to be, to have more psychomotor vigilance, uh, to understand that a, a, a symptom of shock, a symptom of trauma or PTSD or continuous trauma is hypervigilance. So yes, it's natural to want to get in the streets. That's like one of the most natural things in the world is like for a human being to see another human being uh, be murdered, be humiliated, and to want to jump into the streets. That's absolutely natural. That's the easy part. The hard part is deconstructing that and pausing for a minute and saying to yourself, what can I do that's actually going to be of use? And there's something everyone can do. If you're sitting behind a desk somewhere, you're like, oh, I work all the time. I have no time. But you have money to donate then donate the money, you know what I mean? Because resources are needed for folks that are doing the real work. Forever, we came out of our own pockets with this for 10 years. For the last, as soon as George Floyd got murdered, everybody's knocking on our door. For 10 years before that, thank you. You know, so it's, it, it comes in, it, it ebbs and flows. And that's why I say the intention is super important. It can't be about who's paying attention to you. It's the story. That's why when you see our exposés on families, we try to, keep ourselves out of it as much as possible. We want it to be the family speaking to the community and we'll edit it, we'll, we'll amplify it. Yes, we'll be on our Zoom talk to talk about it. I'll be on this uh, radio program to speak about it. But for the most part, I don't want to be seen, you know? I just, I'm just trying to push and amplify. It's really about that. So the intention is paramount. It, the intention has to be right from the beginning, you know? Um, Pablo Ferreri, who I talked about before, uh, the amazing educator and, and pedagogist, I guess you could say, he had a quote that says, you can't start as an object and end up as a subject, right? So to objectify a family member, which is so often done in commercial media because it runs off of unspoken rules, like if it bleeds, it leads, sensationalism, they're going to go with the story that's going to get the rating, Right. So they're objectifying the person who's been murdered. They're objectifying the condition of the family. If it starts as an object, it's really difficult to turn that into 
a subject, to humanize that, to really have that be a part of a, an everyday conversation. But uh, diametrically opposed to that is the concept of presenting this as it is. You know, that's why when we ask people what happened to their loved one, we often ask them to recall the day that they found out and what was going on earlier in the day. So when folks hear this, they can think about, you know, every day you get up and have coffee. What if you had coffee that day? You know, what if it was like me? You're just on your way to your first day of class and now your ex-girlfriend calls you and says, they killed Kat. You know, go look at the post-dispatch. And I have to look and see that they're criminalizing my friend in his grave, you know. And his mother didn't speak out. I was calling her like every other year, maybe once every three years to be like, hey, Mama Tammy, you know, I'm doing this work for all these other families, but I really want to tell Kat's story. I really want you to speak out. She was just be, nah, baby, you know, what happened, happened. I'm just putting it with God and this and that. But when George Floyd was murdered, she came out last summer. You know, first time in 18 years. I guess it was 17 years when she came out, it was June 6th, right? For me, that was amazing catharsis. I mean, it, you'll never get complete closure, but I got more than I could have expected from that. And a lot of her family members thanked me for that. You know, they thanked us. And, and for me, it felt really good. But again, that's it's not about how I feel. It's about what can I do as a citizen for other citizens in this country? You know, what can we do to further the cause of human rights on the planet? And dignity. This is really about dignity. It's a, the way that they present folks and they show on the news over and over again, a man's being murdered in front of everybody. There's a lack of dignity in that. If I was murdered like that, I would hate from the other side to see that they're showing over and over again and showing the moment I lost my life that I was murdered. You know, think about that. You know, so we really have to, you know, digest and inspect this stuff within ourselves and reflect on it with our people, you know, meaning our own communities, those that we build with on a daily, our friends, our family, and, and really talk about it, really think about what is the right methodology ethically. Right? As our as our community is getting less and less, it's getting dehumanized more and more. We're getting desensitized more and more. There's a mass shooting every other day in the country or something. You know, so it's like we really have to be careful. Um, we, we, we really have to know and be conscious of where, um, the national chauvinism and the American exceptionalism ends and where the humanism begins in our own lives. You know, we have to deconstruct that actively. It's not something that just goes away. There's no programs in education for this in this country as of yet. And I'm not saying that it's not possible in the near future. It's, it's, it's likely in the near future if we can get people moving together. And we can get folks really thinking about humanity and, and being a human being. But it is definitely possible. It's probable, as a matter of fact. But we're not there yet. So there's a lot of work. I mean, absolutely. I, I always think um, we need to all look out for each other more and build community. Um, I think it was uh, lovely that you brought up uh, Jay and uh, the Young Your Lords. I'm huge fans of uh, Fred Hampton, the Rainbow Coalition. Um, yes, indeed. I always get frustrated when people... Are, um, think that um like groups like yours and mass liberation are anti-police and um the they don't uh really realize that um police violence affects everybody it doesn't matter what color you are so i think we really need to uh 
build a and emulate the Rainbow Coalition um, and have everyone come together because it's like you said, um, um, anybody um, on any given day, uh, their lives could be changed by police violence, um, and it really does affect um, everyone. And like um, you never really. Um, know how it feels until it happens to you. Um, and I also love that you brought up that um, the Biden administration and Malcolm X, um, I think of Malcolm X's quote about uh, the white liberal is um, a fox smiling uh, rather than the Republican mm-hmm. is the wolf. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, just wrap it up because I've had you for, on for an hour, but I love um, how much you've talked. Don't worry about uh, you weren't rambling or anything. I learned so much from this interview. Um, and do you want to plug anything Force Trajectory Project is working on? Maybe any bills you're supporting in the legislature? Uh, there's so many bills. I mean, we have AB 157, which is in regards to qualified immunity, um, which would allow, you know, uh, prosecution around discrimination and harassment, right? So it's, um, we got SB 50, which is about creating more barriers to obtain no-knock warrants. Um, we've had a number of family members from Families United uh, for Justice Las Vegas testify for these bills as well. So families are active. But there's SB 212, which is a use of force bill uh, addressing chokeholds and, and restricts, restricts the use of the restraint chair, which one of the members of the FU for JLV group, Erica, uh, excuse me, Eric Farah, whose brother Nicholas Farah was murdered on March 31st, 2019. He died in a, in a restraint chair. You know, and then we had a volunteer who was intimidated by Metro and put in a restraint chair. So it's where they're, they're saying it's more of a mental health thing to calm people down. We know that it's been used as a punitive form of torture technique. You know, so we're trying to be done with that. Senator um, Dallas Harris, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is working on uh, a few things uh, around that bill with Eric Farah and others to restrict the use of the chair, as well as a bill that she has designed and, and proposed that's about tracking um, the disparity in people that are pulled over for traffic violations and such. So really big up um, Senator Dallas Harris for doing what she's doing as a legislator as well as um, others who have been trying, you know, within the system to do something. It's very difficult because they're coming up a, a, around a lot of opposition, a lot of reactive um, deflection and different tactics of filibuster type tactics against them in their efforts. So we really have to hold them up. And especially people out there around the legislative session, do not forget to say that your constituent of these folks, when you call them or when you comment on bills around your specific experience or around the empathy that you feel or the sympathy that you feel with folks that have gone through these situations. Um, lastly, one of the ones I, I really want to talk about is AB 58, right? Which is um, kind of uh, taking limiting qualified immunity in a sense, because qualified immunity will prevent any kind of civil case from coming to a uh, law enforcement officer. But the AG, Attorney General Ford here, has proposed uh, AB 58, which would give him uh, the power to prosecute uh, patterns and practices. So not individuals, but the actual patterns and practices of specific precincts and law enforcement organizations for misconduct and murder. So 
some of those bills are, are really important. Again, that's AB 157, SB 50, SB 212, and AB 58, which I just talked about. But there's so many more on the table right now. We don't end our legislative session until July. So I would urge people to get on massliberationnv.org, Mass Liberation, all the handles, you know, in terms of the legal session and how to get involved. Silver State Voices has also been, also been helping us a lot through the Comrades Gated Chambers around training, you know, not only our comms team and our volunteers, but helping to train um, directly impacted folks by uh, Families United for Justice Las Vegas around the mechanics of how do you put in a written, written testimony? How do you track a bill? You know, how do you uh, call a, the office of the legislator and, and what kind of terminology should you use? So I urge people to reach out to those organizations to help out Silver State Voices, Mass Liberation Project, of course. You know, it's great to be on Mass Lib Radio. And then, of course, forcedrectory.com. And that's F-O-R-C-E-D-T-R-A-J-E-C-T-O-R-Y.com. Um, we just had an exhibit end at the end of last month, which was called Water Slipping Through Our Fingers, the Art Memoriam. And so on our website, you can go to the left side and it says Art Memoriam. I would urge everybody to go to our site and just spend some time reading some of the writing. If you go to FT, FTT Media Lab, that specific section is directly impacted folks writing about um, the situation themselves. Um, and then the Art Memoriam, we have a virtual exhibit. So although the physical exhibit is over, that was at the West Las Vegas Library. We're looking for another home for it. You can go on the virtual exhibit, and I myself was involved in developing a piece with Milu Gonzalez, who's a drummer, a professional drummer, that is an audio piece that you could listen to, where she tells the story of her experience around the murder of her brother, and um, she kind of peppers it here and there with interpretation with her drums, and then I had a chance to do some sound design with that. So that's kind of a work in progress, but I would urge folks to go there, listen to that, Educate yourself. Please stay in touch with us and, um, you know, continue to keep your head up. This is a grim, grim reality. But the fact of the matter is there's a certain amount of joy and optimism that has to be maintained to do this work. So don't forget that there is light at the end of the tunnel and it is possible to create change. You know, we do have the power to do that. Yeah, we'll make sure to... Um include the force trajectory um, website on the social media but thank you so much um, for coming on and uh, teaching me and our listeners so much um, if you're tuning in this is kwk 97.7 mass liberation radio um, i'm with oja vincent of force trajectory project thank you so much and one more question uh, do you have a song um, that you'd like for me to play um, it's hmm. okay if you don't. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, one one song. There's so many now, but uh, one song I've been listening to recently that just came out, which I think involves the subject matter. You might have to clean it up a little bit. But, <laughs> it's um, okay. It's, uh, Run the jewels. It's a song nice. called. Uh, it's a, it's a it's a new song. They had a song featuring Zach De La Roca from from Rage Against the Machine, but this is a new song with Zach De La Roca and uh, Pharrell Williams. I'm not crazy about Pharrell's politics, but in this song they did, they're saying something. <laughs> 
you know. So it's called uh, Just the UST. And I think that would be an apt, an apt song to play. Um, it alludes to the connection between child slavery and the history of the nation and what we're experiencing, you know, and connects it to global reality as well. You know, and I think that's a piece that's really missing is that there's a local and the, and the national, but then there's also the global. So this the story didn't begin right here. It began in 1492. You know? Yeah, I'll definitely play this song. Um, um, my boyfriend's in the studio and he just is loving everything uh, you're saying. He loves uh, Run the Jewels and uh, Rage Against yeah, the Machine. Yeah. And yeah, uh, so... Uh, but so thank you so much. I'll definitely play it. Um, and... Um, uh, thank you so much, so much again. Yeah, thank you too. You know, I mean, it's, it's definitely my honor and pre- pleasure to be your guest this evening. And thank you all the listeners that are listening. Yeah, definitely Mass Live Radio forever. <laughs> <laughs> Master at economics, cause you took yourself from squalor. Slave. Master at academics, cause your grace said you were scholar. Slave. Master at Instagram, cause you can instigate a folly. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Spend it time, I'm on mine, I be minding mine Every time on my grind, I'm just trying to shine Make a dollar, government, they want a dozen dimes The petty kind might kill you cause they see you shine I done had to have a talk with myself any time Am I a hypocrite cause I know I did plenty crime I get broke too many times, I might slay some pines You believe corporations running marijuana Ran by a casino on a pedophile sponsor all the all the racist bastards. And I told you once before that you should kill your master. Now that's the line that's probably gonna get my master of these politics. You swear that you got options, right? Master of opinion, cause you vote with the white collar. The 13th Amendment says that slavery's abolished. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Confucius said, Man, you better duck out. Get the bag and the bug out. Uh, try to run home, you might run your luck out. Just when your base is loaded, they'll roll a grenade in the dugout Earth folk, not a mellow bunch We got our thumbs in the air like hella bust uh, Look at who we done blessed with our trust I don't think we'll be left with too much Hand on my heart, on my mind, on my drugs Got a vodka punch for your Atlas shrug Love or not love, it's just that dumb Lord, sweet Buddha, please make me numb Rain bounce off walls like a city in Roomba Just found out it's created stupid Lit by the super moon or too lucid Plus got the blood I'm zooming Beep, beep, Richie, this is New York City The X on the map with a pain keep in it Just us ducks here sitting With murderous choco cops still earning a living Funny how some say money don't matter That's rich now, isn't it? Get it? Comedy? Try to sell packets Supposed to get food, get killed It's not an anomaly Hey, it's just Master money Master at economics Cause you took money. yourself from squalor Sway. Master at academics Cause your grace said you were scholar Sway. Master at Instagram Cause you can instigate a folly Look at all these slave masters Yeah, yeah let us sink in. 2020 on the map. Wrong one cut in my hourglass. Don't watch it spill to the bottom half. You see the beast out running fast on the tarmac. Get a starter jack. C4 when I run it back. Like a track star on a lap. Nah, like when it's still cash. Clean look, poor pugilist. I 
gonna reach for the worst Tear on the flesh of the earth Stay set for a deafening reckoning Quick like a pace of a verse So questioning This quest for things is a recipe for early death threatening But the path of me is weaponry for you with just money, 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 money.